All right, kids, we're going to have to stay with your families again today, but if you want, you can stand up on a chair or sit on somebody's shoulders so we can, you can see me and I can see you well. We're going to say hi to all of our friends at home as well who are with us at home. All right. So uh, today, Memorial Day weekend, we're kind of at the unofficial beginning of summer, and uh, summer is a good time for us to get outside and enjoy some of the things outdoors. And so let's say we're going to go outside, and let's say I'm going to make myself a s'more. Raise your hand if you like s'mores. Anybody? Yeah, lots of people. All right, good. All right, so think about what it takes to make a s'more, right? First, I have to go to the store, and I have to buy the graham crackers and the marshmallows and the chocolate, right? Buy all my supplies. Then I have to come home, and I need to make a nice fire, right? Then once I have my nice fire, what do I do? Oh, then I roast my marshmallows, right? With great patience, nice and slow, so they're golden brown. I don't want to get them burned, right, and all black. That's, that's gross. Don't do that, right? Nice and toasty, golden brown. And then what's the last thing I do before, after I have that? Then I put the s'more all together, right? I put it all together. And once that s'more is all together, gooey, melty, then what do you do with it? Mm, you get to eat it, right? You get to eat that s'more, right? But let's say, what, if I, what happens if I don't make my s'more in the right order? What if I don't do it orderly? What if I hold out my marshmallows before I start a fire? Is that going to work very well? No, that's not going to work very well. What if I put chocolate on my roasting stick and put that over the fire? Would that work well? No, it's going to melt, isn't it? That's not going to work. Right? So everything has to be done well. It has to be done orderly in the right order. Everything kind of in its place so that that s'more turns out really nice. Right? Now, in the s'more making process, what's the most important thing about that? It's when you get to what? When you get to eat it. Right? Everything points to that moment when you get to take the bite of that s'more and enjoy all that yummy goodness. Right? So, in the Bible, here's the transition. <laughs> in the Bible, uh, in the next few chapters in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be learning about worshiping together in the church service, coming together on Sunday morning and worshiping together. And God's Word gives us some things to consider as we gather to worship. But part of what we're going to be learning over the next few weeks is that everything needs to be done in good order. Everything has its proper place in order for us to gather to worship. And so as we think about the worship service then, let's also think about what is the most important thing in the worship service? Is the most important thing what songs we sing? Is the most important thing what friends we have here with us or at home? Is the most important thing whether you get to come up front for the children's message or whether you have to stay in your seat? Those things are, those things are important, right? But they're not the most important. Of all the things, the most important thing about the worship service is God himself. Yeah, God is the most important thing in our worship service. Everything else we do is in service to God. And so similar to how each part of making a s'more is important, but all the focus is when you get to actually eat it, right? Similar to that, each part of our worship service is important, but the focus is all on God, Every part of the worship service, everything we do is for God's glory. 
And so we want to be people who have a proper perspective when we come to worship each week. We want to be people who keep our focus always on God and worshiping Him and seeing His glory. So when you come to worship, focus on God. All right, Pastor Jeremy's going to come now and preach. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. It's uh, a good intro to order on Sunday morning. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, grab them out. I'd encourage you to have them in front of you right now. Um, I think it'll start this way. <clears throat> it, you all are often very encouraging to us as pastors and elders. Uh, you're, you're not um, stingy, I guess, in your encouragement, which is enjoyable. And one thing that we do here from time to time is very thankful for how courageous we are in just telling the truth. We tell it like it is and so forth. I got an email like that yesterday. V- very, very encouraging. Wonderful. <clears throat> and I just want you to know that uh, you're very kind and you don't understand how fearful we are often. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, especially the first 16 verses, are probably uh, the most... Um, or maybe the least desirable verses to preach in the entire Bible, if I could say it like that. I don't think that's an overstatement. In fact, I found myself two years ago when I was just seeking the Lord on what to preach next and decided on 1 Corinthians it was these verses that I was most reluctant to preach this book because of. And I've spent two years reading and studying just these verses. Um consistently over the two years. And as the time drew near to get to this, I started to think like, well, we're going through this COVID-19 thing. Maybe I should wait. These verses maybe wouldn't be helpful right now. And, and so let's, uh, let's put them off a few weeks um, and try to look for reasons not to preach them. And so I went to people in my life and said, what do you think? Like the COVID-19 thing, right? We should, what if I pushed them off? What do you think? And Surprisingly, everything. No, just preach them. Shoot. Uh, so, uh, you should know that any preacher who tells you that what you think of him or your evaluation of preaching doesn't really matter is lying to you. What you guys think of my preaching, how you evaluate it, what you say to me impacts me greatly. <laughs> it makes me not want to preach this. It makes me not want to preach these verses. Why? Well, because success in the pastorate is seats in the pews. The more people we have, the more people we have coming, especially new people, the better I must be doing as a job. Because that's how we evaluate success, right? Numbers. Numbers, numbers, numbers. And the church is all about marketing today. It's about appearance. It's about Appeal to those outside the church. That's the definition of success in the church, that we're good at marketing. And pastors are really good at this. Let me tell you, I don't want to disillusion you here. I do. And I'm going to read something to you in a moment. But you should know that we pastors, I'm not talking for Pastor Jeff here, myself here, right? Uh, We pastors are like ninjas at knowing how to preach a text to make you think we're preaching the word, but we've avoided the hard stuff. 
Do you understand what I mean here? Like we can be really good. I can preach 1 Corinthians 11. I know what you don't like in this passage. I know what could make you upset. And I could preach this word and afterwards you say, thanks for preaching the word. And I've really avoided bringing the word home to your life. I've really avoided offending you. And yet you think I've done a good job. And you have these temptations in your life too at work and in your marriage and, and so on. That you, you say things or do things in a way that makes it look like you're good and courageous, but you've avoided it. We're really good at these things as humans because we don't like to be disapproved by others. We don't like rejection. We hate it. There's nothing I hate more in my life than being rejected. I hate it. I hate it. Some of you who are remaining at home know what I'm talking about. You feel rejected. You're not actually being rejected, but the sense of not being able to get together with others as others are just makes you feel rejected. And it's really, really hard. Uh, And this text is hard. It hasn't been hard in the history of the church until about the 1950s or 1960s, and especially in America with feminism. And this text since that time has become, we just go, it's just cultural. Nothing to see here. Just cultural. Yes, a woman should submit to a man. Yes, a wife should submit to her husband. But the head covering thing, that's just cultural. Don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. And we preachers are really good. How many of you, honestly, have ever heard a sermon preached on these verses? Very few of you. How many of you have ever heard a sermon preached on head coverings before in the church? A couple. Because we just avoid it like the plague. And this is one of the most important books in the Bible. It is where you go for the doctrine of the church. It is where you go for the doctrine of the resurrection. It is where you go for the doctrine of spiritual gifts and their use in the church. It is where you go for any kind of unity and division. It is the book. And yet, chapter 11 is like area 51. It's there, but is it? Right? So I'm confessing something to you. I'm afraid of preaching these verses. I I really am. If that disillusions you, good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written a book called Life Together, which is, I haven't read all the books on the church, but if you want to read one book on the church, that's the, this is the book. The elders read it a couple years ago now, several months ago. It is incredible. Every page is like, that was awesome. The next page is better. And the next page is better. It is incredible. It's really good. Let me read you a quote. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves. That is, what he's saying is you're ever going to really have Christian fellowship, you first have to become disillusioned with your idea of it. Do you know what I mean? You've had this in your life, in your marriage. You get married to a person and you have this glorious, haloed picture of your spouse, and then you get married. 
and it doesn't turn out to be the same. He isn't the knight in shining armor. I won't talk about your wife, but you know what I mean. You have to become disillusioned with the person you've married in order to really enter into fellowship with the person you married. Your, your false picture of the person has to become destroyed before you can really begin to learn and love the person. He's talking about that in the church. By, God, by sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief moment in that dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experience and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not the God of the emotions, but the God of truth. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment, that is, only that church which is really willing to face that truly and not live in the disillusionment with all of its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such crisis, that is, seeing the disillusionment when it can't survive it, which insists on keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected in the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the actual community will destroy it. You see that? This is so important to get. Listen to that. He who loves his dream, his illusion of what it should be, you love that more than what it actually is, you'll destroy it. This happens in marriages, this happens in friendships, this happens in churches, this happens in workplace. Somebody does something to destroy your illusion, your wish dream of who they are or what the business is to be, and you can't handle it. You can't handle the truth. And so you continue to strive to live in the illusion and you destroy the relationship. He even goes on to say, even though your personal intentions are, so ever, are, are ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, you mean well. Listen to what he says next. This is shocking. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of the church demand, demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own laws, and judges the brethren and God accordingly. He stands adamant. Everyone must meet my demands. He is a living reproach to others in the circle of the brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community of the church, as if, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his picture, when his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of the brothers. He blames everybody else. Then he might even accuse God. He gets bitter. And finally, he'll accuse himself. And so your pastor is afraid to preach 1 Corinthians 11. 
I, I hope that destroys your illusion that I am this courageous, no-holds-barred preacher. I, I really tried to sweat everything to get out of preaching this this Sunday. I'd rather not. Because it says some things that are really embarrassing in our day. I mean, it really says some things that are like, that can't be in the Bible. And wait till we get to 1 Corinthians 14. All right. So, um, what are you going to do with that? Well, you don't know, David? Me, me either. You think that, like, we're leaders in the church? We don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> we just try to be faithful to what God says and watch God do something. That's really the, that's, that's the pastoral vision for our church. We're going to be faithful to God says his word and, and, and have the faith that God will work it out. <laughs> if you're looking for something else, <laughs> this is not the place for you. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just holding on. All right. So that's what we're going to do with this. So I'm going to preach this. And I was going to preach two sermons on 2 to 16, but I'm probably going to end up preaching four or five to tell you the truth. I just think we need to take a lot of time here. So today, I'm going to do just an overview of this first half of the letter, and then hopefully just spend some time in verse 2. Only, you know, I, I usually don't go this slow, but I think it's worth it here. Uh, and so that, that's my plan. Uh, I hope you're not too disillusioned. I, I hope that you have the faith to see that you're only surrounded by those sinners saved by grace. Ain't nobody righteous here. And I just use the word ain't to annoy all of you grammar, self-righteous people. <laughs> all right, let me read the text. I'll read verses 2 to 16, pray, and then I, I guess I want to do kind of an overview and hopefully get to verse 2 without taking too much time. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain. The ESV doesn't do the best here. It's really hold firm to the traditions. Isn't that shocking? <laughs> right? Traditions are evil. Here Paul is saying, praise God, you've held firmly to the traditions. Even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife, you'll notice a little number there and it looks down. It, the word is just general woman. The head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For, a wife, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife or a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as, a wo for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. 
Is it proper for a wife or a woman to pray with, to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you deal with us according to your character and according to your word. Teach us good judgment and knowledge, for we believe in your commandments. God, help us to keep your word. You are good and do good, and so teach us your statutes. May our whole heart keep them. Our heart is often unfeeling, so teach us to delight in your law. It is good that we are afflicted, that we might submit ourselves and learn your statutes. God, your law from your mouth is better to us than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. May that be true in our hearts even now. In Jesus' name, amen. We ended last week with uh, this delightful summons to do everything for the glory of God in 1031. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. In the context of chapters uh, 8 through 10, were fellowship with other believers or unbelievers. The context was, the situation was likely a home. And whether or not you should eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. You remember this. So if you buy meat in the market that had been sacrificed to an idol and you're eating it at home, no question of conscience. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness of there, thereof. Eat and enjoy. If you're eating at somebody else's house and they put meat before you, Eat it. Have no question of conscience. But if it becomes apparent that they say something like, oh, that's been offered to idols, then don't eat it. Not for the sake of your conscience, but for the sake of theirs. Why? Because we want to do everything to the glory of God. But the context, the situation was likely in, in a home. The same principle of all glory to God is continuing in chapters 11 to 14, but the situation, the context, the setting has shifted now to the gathering of the local church. Chapters 11 to 14 are all about the the gathering of the local church to worship God and right order in the worship service so that God gets all the glory to Pastor Jeff's uh, s'more analogy. You got to do things in the right order so that when it's orderly, God gets all the glory. That's what these chapters are about, 11, 12, 13, and 14. So this glorious chapter 13, the chapter of love, is all aimed at loving each other in the corporate gathering for worship. That's the context of these next four chapters. The first half of chapter 11, it's the right ordering of the sexes, male and female, in worship so that God gets all the glory. At the end of chapter 11, it's all about right ordering of the Lord's Supper so that God gets all the glory. And then chapters 12, 13, and 14 are dealing with the right ordering of spiritual gifts so that God gets all the glory. So what we're talking about here is Sunday morning in these chapters. And Sunday morning, first in relation to you as male and female, second in relation to Lord's Supper, 
And third, in relation to spiritual gifts. All right. Now, in chapter 11, the issue has to deal, deal with male and female. And of course, there's a huge cultural problem in our world today when you start talking about this at all. Um, and my understanding had been before two years ago, before I really began to seriously study this, is that all that I had ever heard and read, that I remember at least, is that the issue of head coverings was cultural. doesn't have to be applied anymore today. How many of you are like that? That's all I've ever heard. And so I just assumed it. I didn't study it. I just assumed it. Um, but I knew in my own reading, their little warning light would go off, that it just doesn't read. Like, it's just cultural. It just reads like, this, is, this should be a thing. But I've never really dealt with it. So when I began to study it, um, you begin to see, we'll talk about this in a moment, but basically all of church history, I mean all of it, in all places, in all cultures, over all time, women have worn head coverings of some sort, whether it's a veil, a hat, or a doily of something until about the 1950s or 60s in America, particularly. Some of you are probably old enough not to draw attention to remember those days. Like I, I just did some research on pictures in churches prior to 1950, and you can't find a woman without something on her head. <laughs> and then suddenly they're gone. I began to see things like that. So, so you begin to study. Then you have the cultural issue in Corinth that, Looks like prostitution was a big deal as it was across the ancient world. And um, prostitutes would often shave their head, I guess. It's not even that historically true, maybe. And so Paul was saying, like, you don't want to look like prostitutes in the church women, so cover your heads. Keep your hair long, cover them. So that's some cultural context there, too. We'll get to that when we come to those things but one of the things we have to differentiate is between biblical principles and, and just customs. R.C. Sproul makes this point. That when you come to a text like 1 Corinthians 11, there's some differencing of understanding here. Is head covering a biblical principle that transcends time and place? Or is it just the application of a principle to a local custom? This is the decision we're going to have to make when we come to this text. Is it biblically mandated as a command? Or is it just the, how do we glorify God in Corinth in relation to what's going on here? And this is an application, kind of like tithing. We all know that tithing is a biblical command. It's a principle, right? When I was in Africa, though, you know how they tithe? Somebody has a banana tree, they cut off a big bundle of bananas and they bring it to the front. They tithe in bananas. Another one might have chickens, and so they bring eggs. They tithe in eggs. Or in Jesus' day, they tithed in Roman coins. I can't think of the name of it right now. Denarius or a drachma, right? Does that mean that we have to do it like that? Or was their tithing with their coin just a custom of the principle? You, know, you see what I'm saying here? Well, one of the things we have done in our day is we have said, if we're not sure if it's principle or custom, 
we'll just fall on the side of it's a custom and we won't do it. And I think that's wrong. If we're not sure, wouldn't wisdom dictate that we treat it as a principle until we're convinced it's a custom? Why? Well, if you aren't sure if it's a principle or a custom and you treat it as if it's a principle and you're wrong, all you've done is been a bit overzealous and maybe committed a fashion faux pas. No big deal. So to use R.C. Sproul, he and his family were very convinced that this was a principle of head covering. So his wife would cover her head, hat, his daughters would, and they were the only one in R.C. Sproul's church in his 50 years of pastoring it, the only women who ever did it. (laughs) Because they were convinced it was a principle, and even if they weren't sure, to To disobey a principle is to disobey a command, which is sin. To disobey a custom is just a faux pas. You understand what I'm saying here? And so we we need to be inclined towards obedience. When in doubt, we treat it as a principle. When in doubt, we treat it as a principle. So what I want to do now is, is back up a bit from the text and try to give you an overview. What's going on in these 15 or 16 verses? What's happening here? Now, by the way, As we go through them, I am not, no one here, and I'll say this again, is going to mandate that women start wearing head coverings next Sunday. Not at all. The whole concern of these four chapters is good order in the church. And I couldn't think of anything that would create more disorder and confusion than to mandate next Sunday that all the women start wearing head coverings. So you can go about the right thing in the wrong way and be really wrong, and that would be that. You need to be convinced of this yourself. You need to study the text. You need to listen to the preaching. You need to study the text, become convinced of something, and then take action in faith before God. That's what's going to have to happen here. Okay? If you're not convinced of it, then then don't be. If you are convinced of it, then act by faith. So the context here, the context, as I said, is all about the glory of God in worship. We saw that. It ended last chapter with whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And now they're taking that principle and in the corporate worship, them. the only thing that matters, not the only thing, the, the central thing that matters, the main thing that matters above all other things is the glory of God. This, these verses have a lot about disgrace and shame. And that disgrace and shame is in relationship to distracting, detracting from God's glory by taking it on yourself. But one of the things we're particularly sensitive to in our church and every church is the musicians up here. That they not act in such a way that brings themselves the attention. Every Christian cringes when you see a worship leader or a singer or a musician acting in such a way or dressing in such a way to draw the attention to him or her. Why? Because we know as Christians, we want to reflect glory to God. We want to bring him the glory. So we don't want a performance up here. Christian musicians go to great lengths to avoid the word performance. Nobody says, I'm going to perform for you. Why? Because they know that that's, yeah, it's about God's glory. It's not a performance. We want to do what we do up here in a way to bring God the glory and not draw attention to ourselves. And that's what's going on in these chapters. We see that 
In verse 7, man is the image and glory of God, and woman is the glory of man. Verse 15, a woman's hair is her glory. And so what is to be the glory in worship? God. The whole central premise of these verses is, we want nothing to come between you and God's glory. We want nothing to distract you from God's glory. We want nothing to attract glory to ourselves or to each other, but to God's glory. That's what it's all about. And we see in these verses there are three glories present on every Sunday morning. In order to get what Paul is getting at, you have to get this point. There are three glories he mentions in this text. Of course, the first one is God. It's about God's glory. And so God is the glory here. Who he is and what he's done is to be the center of our attention. His being, his nature, his attributes, his saving work through his son on the cross is to be the everything here. But there's other glories here. A second glory is man. By man here, I don't mean mankind, I mean men. Man is the image and glory of God. That's another glory here. So men, I hope this is encouraging to you. You are seated here as a glory to God, as a picture of the glory of God. The third glory we see here then is a woman's glory. She is, in verse 7, which is a key verse in this section, the glory of man. And her glory is, in verse 15, what's her glory? This is why I don't want to preach this text. Because it's really embarrassing to stand up here and say this stuff. And I shouldn't be ashamed. God help me. What does the Holy Spirit say a woman's glory is in verse 15? Please hear that. What does the Holy Spirit, who inspired this word, what does he say is your glory as a woman? Your hair. Your hair. So what does head coverings have to do with? Covering up something that could compete with God's glory. That's what's going on in this text. That's, that's what's going on here. The point is to have right order for everyone to rightly relate to God in such a way and to each other in such a way that God gets all the glory. He won't have competing glories. All glories but God's need to be covered up. Since man is the glory of God, he shouldn't cover. Since woman is the glory of man, she should cover her glory, namely her hair. Now there is some discussion here on whether her hair itself is the covering or whether there needs to be some external covering of the hair as the covering. We'll get to that later. I'm just giving you an overview, which means I don't have to come down solid yet, which means you can't get mad at me yet. And I hope you realize, you're not getting mad with me. Deal with the text. It says these things. I'm just reading them. What are you going to do? You'd know if I was lying here, right? You'd know. And you should never put up with that. You should never put up with a preacher who won't say what the text says. And say it very plainly. So we assemble to give God the glory. And all other completing glory should be covered. 
We'll get to the angels issue in later weeks. So man is the glory of God. And so a head covering, uh, a head covering of his would be wrong. Woman is the glory of man. A woman's hair in particular is her glory, so she should cover up. So not to detract from God's glory. That's what it says. And you'll notice that the reason I don't believe this covering, whatever we end up seeing it is, is cultural is because it's grounded in the ordering of the Trinity itself and in the ordering of creation. And then it's applied in verse 16 to all churches everywhere. So again, what is corporate worship for? For God's glory. For you and I to come and see without distraction, without compete, competition, the glory of God. Isn't that wonderful? It seems very plain what we do here. It seems very everyday. There's no mountains on fire. The ground isn't shaking. Angels aren't blowing trumpets. And yet that is, if you have faith to see it, what's happening here. You are here and are seeing God's glory. That's why you're here. That's why it was so hard to not gather during COVID. Because we weren't seeing what we want to see. And you don't even know it. But that's why you wanted to get back here. Because you want to see God's glory. Because God's glory is present. Now it's present everywhere. But there seems to be something unique about the church gathering. We want his glory. One of the problems, I'm getting on to my second point now. One of the problems we have in our day is we, we fail to see any connection with laws or rules and the nature of God and the nature of creation. Most of us understand commands or laws or rules to be just arbitrary, which in our lawmakers, they often are. <laughs> right? Kids struggle this with their parents. You say, go take a shower. Why? It just seems like an arbitrary rule coming out of nowhere. And we, we see God's laws in his word like that sometimes. God says a woman, let's say, if he's saying this, a woman should cover her hair. And it just seems like arbitrary. Why would God say that? It doesn't seem connected to anything firm or solid. But we know, we should know, all of God's commands flow from who God is. They're connected to his very nature. They're not arbitrary at all. Every command in the Bible, every law in the Bible is traced right back to the very nature and essence of God and to creation, to Genesis 1 and 2. And here, to the creation of male first, right, and female second. It's undeniable in this passage. It's undeniable in this passage where he's grounding it. Oops, turned back twice. I was in chapter 7 and it didn't read what I wanted to read there. Why should a woman cover her hair? Why should a man not cover his head? Verse 8, he, he grounds it in the ordering of creation. He grounds his command, not arbitrarily, not nowhere. It's not hanging out in space somewhere. I don't know where that came from. 
he grounds it right back to Genesis 1 and 2. Four, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And modern, feminist, egalitarian man, I'm done with it. It has to say something else for me to be a Christian. It cannot say that. Because we are so trained in feminism to to read anything like that as saying, women are less valuable than men. Women are less important than men. Women are less worthy than men. That's what you're feeling right now. Because to to hold to the Genesis creation order is to devalue women. That's what we're trained to think. Any kind of hierarchical, patriarchical teaching in the Bible automatically means women are less important, less valuable, and so we can't have that. And yet he continues on, doesn't he? Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of man nor man of woman, right? He's just getting down to the birds and the bees here. You need men and women in order to have babies. You can't have men if you don't have women, and you can't have women if you don't have men. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of a woman. <laughs> you should explain these things to your children afterwards. They need to know these things. Eve was made from Adam, and then Cain and Abel were born of Eve <laughs> because Adam and Eve had sex. And, and, and what he's saying is, men and women are absolutely equal in the sight of God. Equal worth, equal dignity, equal in need of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Equal in regards to coming to God in prayer. Equal in regards to giving him glory and worship. And yet different and distinct in regards how they're supposed to do that. Based on the order that they were created in. That, that's all that this logic is here. That's all this Holy Spirit is saying here. Notice in verse 7, he says, man is what in relation to God? Two words. Image and glory of God. Then he goes on to women. What is woman in relation to man? Just one word. Like, look at your text here. You're looking at me. Look at your text here. What word is missing in the description of man, woman's relation to man that is there in man's relationship to God? Image. Why? Because male and female, he made them in the image of God. A woman does not lack the image of God. She's completely equal in regards to who she's been created before God. And yet in worship, how she is to bring God glory is going to be different than how the man bring God's glory because man was created first and woman second. Amen. So you as a woman have complete dignity and worth as the image bearer of God and how you bring him glory and worship is going to be different than all the men seated around you because you were created second from the man, for the man. And you bear a glory, a beauty, a wonder 
that may distract from who you were created to glory, glorify your man, your husband. And so a godly woman, Paul is saying, is going to be really careful about this. So these laws aren't arbitrary. God isn't sitting around in heaven wondering, what's the next law I should create? Yeah, women should wear something on their head. Sounds good. No, he created the world in such a way that this is an inevitable conclusion to his ordering of the creation. And as I've said, if you do any research on church history on this, as one uh, translator said, 99.9% of church history has seen women wear some sort of covering. <laughs> it's really until our feminist age. Order matters, nature matters. To go against God's law regarding your sex is to go against his ordering in his trinity and his ordering in nature, and it's destructive. Don't we see that in our world today? This rebellion against the ordering of nature and the destruction it's bringing in marriages, no-fault divorce, right? Because the whole thing of feminism is freedom of women, so now freedom have the freedom of no-fault divorce. How's that going for us? Or of abortion, freedom, how's that going for us? Or the freedom to keep your home in order because you know it's your job, and then to go out and be the breadwinner because that's now your job. How's that going for us? I just think we really struggle with these verses because we've all grown up, I have, I have never not known a time in my life where feminism is not the prevailing worldview. It has dominated my education, the home I grew up in, the TV I've watched, the songs I've listened to. It is reality for me. And I am convinced the only reason I come to these verses have any struggles because of that alternative worldview, which is godless. It totally denies Genesis 1 and 2. It denies the creation order. But we do have to realize here, head coverings, wherever we land on it, are not a core biblical doctrine. This is the one place in the Bible it's mentioned. Now, I don't want to take pressure off here, but the church is not going to stand or fall based on whether or not we, women wear head coverings. The church will stand or fall based on whether or not we hold to the inerrancy and inspiration of God's word, the Trinitarian nature of God, and the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ for us in our place as sinners. That's the core. Whether or not we believe God created all things good, made us male and female in his image, we deny that. Of course, the church is useless. But, we do know in Scripture, Jesus says, when you can prove faithful to little things, you'll get bigger things. See, what we've done in our day is, is we say, since it's not the first of importance, since it's only secondary or tertiary of importance, then it's unimportant. The Bible actually says other. When you learn to be faithful with the things of second or third or fourth importance, then you can be faithful with the things of first importance. So when a young man or young woman learns how to clean up after themselves. Then they can learn the import, they can give them the responsibility of driving a car. 
But if they can't pick up to their own bedroom, you shouldn't give them keys to a car yet. Because they've got to learn to be faithful in little things before they can get bigger things. And so we need to be faithful in little things, whatever that means here. Now, the really shocking thing, of course, is the tying of a woman's glory to her hair. Let's just press into that a moment. I know I'm going long. Um, that's okay, I hope. I, I, you owe me. It's been several weeks of short. And if any of you are already inclined to think ill of me, that was a joke. It was humorous. You don't actually owe me any minutes. So, verse 15, her hair is given to her for a covering. It's, it's her glory. And I just want to say, isn't this obvious in the world? Isn't it obvious that women and her hair is a major thing? I just think this is so obvious once you think about it. Even in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s when men started wearing their hair longer, what did women do? They wore it even longer. Because <laughs> they are not going to be undone in what is their glory. And that's why it's so shameful for a man to spend so much time on his hair. And if men are in a locker room and watch a man really taking care of his hair, what do we do? We mock him mercilessly. That's how men work. Because it's a joke for a man to spend as much time on his hair as a woman. <laughs> Sorry if that offends you, but it's true. That's why men do this. Look around. You see it. Just look around. Why are all the hair care products on TV aimed directly at women? Why when Britney Spears shaved her head, after she had done all this crazy stuff, if you look at the news, this is back in the 2000 times, or early 2000s, she did all this nut stuff. She divorced her husband. She went crazy. But when she shaved her head, that was the news. Why? Because it was her glory. <laughs> See how practical the Bible is? See how earthy the Bible is? Women are embarrassed by this. You shouldn't be. God gave you your hair as a glory. And you have all different kinds of hair here. As you get older, your, your hair changes. It's not going to be the same for every woman as every other woman. I think this is such an obvious truth. Man is the image and glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. And a woman's hair is her foremost glory. And every young man, what he's looking at is a woman's hair. Can I just be honest with you as, as women? Do you not know this about us as guys? Hair is a major attraction for a man. So, sorry if that's really embarrassing, but it's true. It's, it's, it's very true. Okay? I, I saw, sorry, Mandy, Mandy's hair, and went, wow. <laughs> it's so crazy, isn't it? What we're like. Isn't this embarrassing? I'm red, I'm sweating. This is just the world, isn't it? And isn't it a comfort you to come to the Bible and just say, man, the, the Bible's describing what is true because that's how he's created it. This is, this is why we have faith in God because his word is so true. It's so applicable. We've seen it during COVID time. I've watched Facebook. I really haven't seen many men complaining about not being able to get a haircut. I've seen lots of women. And not complaining in the negative sense. You want to do up your glory. It's just revealing what we're seeing here. 
Women typically don't go to a friend to get their hair cut. Men do. They just grab it and shave it. Big deal. Dad, cut my hair. I never heard a daughter say, Dad, did you cut my hair? <laughs> Dads, pick up a scissor and go towards your daughter. See what happens. <laughs> so we see this. The point I just want to make is externals matter in the Bible, don't they? This is another lie we've come to in the church. Externals don't matter. We are to glorify God in our souls and in our bodies. Externals matter in the Bible. They reveal the internal. If we had a man up here leading us in worship, and he was all primped and done up nice and had all the right gyrations... He's communicating something to you by his externals. And what is he communicating? That he's all about himself. He's just all about himself. You see a, a woman, immodest, externally, she's communicating something. And what our world does is, when you read the communication, they condemn you for being judgmental. But we have the language of body language for a reason, right? Because we communicate always. And what are we to be communicating mainly in the worship service? It is about the glory of God. That's the one thing you and I should communicate through our dress through our facial expression, through our body posture. Sometimes you might have to communicate lament to the glory of God, real sadness, because you are heartbroken to God's glory. And that facial expression, that dress, you might be wearing black that day. And you don't even know why. And your face is down. You are here to glorify God, but you're doing it sad. Might be the opposite another day. You're Rejoicing. But, but we are here to communicate one thing. Through everything about us. In our hearts. In our externals. Now of course, we can worship God externally and our hearts be far from him. That's the greater danger. And then you could have somebody who externally looks like they're drawing attention to themselves, but their hearts are all engaged with God. That's true too. But we want to show everyone when we come here, it is about him. It's not about me. It's about him. That's what this text is about. I I don't have time to get to verse 2. We'll do that coming up. That's it. Let's be about God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truthfulness of it the sense it makes of our lives in this world, the sense it makes of us as men and women, the sense it makes of us on Sunday morning. Thank you that it is so helpful. But God, in our flesh, we sometimes wish you'd be a little less helpful. We sometimes wish you wouldn't say these things, and that's our fault, and so forgive us. Help us to be the kind of people, the kind of church that has no problem with any part of your word, and help us to understand it rightly. So God, help us to understand this rightly. Help us have patience with each other here, to bear with each other, but give us faith to live it out to your glory. And may that be the one thing we're about. 
your glory. So help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the charge is this. The charge is uh, to be okay with just being a man or a woman that God has created you to be. That's it. Let's have faith to be a man, to, to be the glory and image of God. And let's have faith to be a woman, the glory of man. Let's have faith for God has created you to be as male and female. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May love go with all of you in Jesus Christ and in the Father and by the Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. Love you. Thank you for joining us, either live stream or in person. God bless.